in, in some sense, like the origins of parkour is the real life story of Fight Club. Mm. Um, it's quite, it's in, but there's this interesting place where like it, it bifurcates, right? There's, yeah. There's the place where like this, this desire to grow is, is motivated so much by anger. And then there's, then there's a place where it goes into a place of love, right? You know, Stefan says, right? In some sense, training with David as powerful and impactful as it was, it was like training to the dark side. Mm. And then he went and trained with Williams and Williams was like the light side of the force. And in the book, there's a moment where Williams is, is uh, he's, I think he's 11 years old when this realization arises for him. He does this jump and it transforms him, right? He feels like, you know, because his brothers could do this jump, he's so much younger than them. And he comes and he's able to do this jump. Um, it's like, it's this rite of passage for him. And it, it feels like totally transformation. And then he brings his friend and his friend does the same jump. And he can see that the jump didn't mean to his friend what it meant to him. And then he makes this switch, this realization that what he's there for isn't the jump, it's the meaning. Mm. And, and so it's like, that's, that's where my work is, right? Like, that's what I've been trying to do. But like, Williams made that realization in like, I don't know, 1995 or something, <laughs> you know? And yeah. he was an 11 year old boy. You know, the reason I wanted to, to bring us back to this like Fight Club thing is it's like, you know, I can tell you what Eric Weinstein says and what Jordan Peterson says and, you know, Daniel Schmachtenberger talking about how, you know, we're stuck in this self-extinguishing cycle of, of exponential stuff, but I'm mostly just re-articulating them, right? Mm -hmm. But there's something interesting about the fact that the movement community, the parkour people that are, we share interest in this. Like there's so many people in our community who are, who are picking this stuff up. And there's like a kind of insight that's coming out of it. It's like, I'm having chats with John Berveke because he's intrigued by how parkour in some sense is like a seed for a practice or a set of practices of wisdom cultivation that can be a solution for the problems that we face in the world. Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. So our guest this week is Brandon Douglas. Brandon Douglas is a longtime member of the Colorado parkour community. He's worked with Apex Movement in various capacities in parkour EDU. He's the founder of the Height Drop podcast and was for a long time one of the best parkour speed athletes in, um, in the world. So really somebody I've admired for many years. Um, he's also somebody who's taken a big interest in kind of how movement intersects with meaning and you know how this can be more of a growth and self-development pathway so uh, this is kind of a funny interview because we initially were going to kind of have brandon on my podcast 
uh, to be interviewed here, or I was going to be wearing that interviewer hat. Um, but it ended up kind of switching because we're going to do this for both of our podcasts. So this will be appearing on his podcast. But uh, in this in this case, Brandon is primarily kind of asking me about my perspective because he's very interested in the ideas around movement and meaning and how those things interconnect. So if you if you don't like to listen to Rafe talk and you're mostly interested in the guests, uh, this won't be your favorite one. Um, but it's a very interesting conversation. Um, so yeah, without further ado, here's my conversation with Brandon Douglas. Boom. Yeah, so I think this is going to be pretty relaxed. I'm super exhausted and like it's been just a super intense time. So should be should be chill. Let's make it chill. Yeah. What's been so intense? Or I mean, obviously, shit's wild, but how is it affecting you? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the, the biggest kind of financial center of our business is our week-long and four-day retreats. And we had to cancel one, might have to cancel more. Um, so all that money's in jeopardy and we can't really market anymore, right? And then we had all of our two-day retreats, which we have to basically just stop, stop selling, right? Or we, we just canceled them all. That's been like, you know, just figuring out what this looks like going forward. And, uh, you know, we're, we're lucky compared to most people in the, in the industry who are movement teachers because we don't rely on our, you know, regular classes. Um, mm. And we don't have large liability from owning a gym. And we are already positioned to move online when, like, everyone's going to want to move online. But uh, still, it's like, it's just a huge, like, having to kind of go from looking at a few different things to like hyper focus and uh yeah so that's been going on and you know just life yeah yeah and um is there anything that you see happening on the other side of this that's that you felt like was like uh inevitable that this has kind of been helped quicken in a way maybe in terms of like, you know, I mean, I love that your, your thing has evolved because I'm really fascinated with evolution and human evolution. Yeah. And I'm wondering like, what, like, why is this happening now? Like, how does this play into our evolution as a species? Mm-hmm. Um, is it like going against nature? Is it, is it, or is it, you know, yeah. is it something that's like, this was bound to happen just because of the way we've been moving? In a lot of ways, you can say, historically, this is actually just a return to normal. Mm. Um, that we've always lived in the era of the pandemic, or at least we've lived in the era of the pandemic since, you know, the Romans, basically, right? Um, it doesn't seem like in the early Roman emperor, Empire or the Roman Republic or the Greeks that they had nearly as much, uh, I mean, they had problems with this, but it wasn't as bad. Um, but but once you kind of connected the world island, uh, it got really, really bad. And if you look at history, there's, I think that's one thing that a lot of people who are, who are skeptical about this or who, you know, are, who are COVID deniers, um, it, it seems to me they just really have a lack of historical priors. Because when you read about smallpox and you read about plague and you read about measles and cholera and, you know, typhus and all these things that have come through, it's like those things were, were crippling to society and they changed, they changed the whole culture at times. Like uh, one of my theories uh, or my hypothesis, I would say is that like we have this perception of the past as being like super sexually repressed 
like Christianity and European culture was hyper sexually repressed. And there always has been a vein of that. But I think my impression is that during the medieval period, and this is kind of speculative because we don't have a lot of evidence from like the, the common people, but my impression is that the common people were really not that bothered by what the Catholic church had to say, that the sexual morals were relatively open during that time. Um, there was a lot less shame about it. And it was after syphilis arrived that all of a sudden those super strict Victorian social mores became um, really common because people were going crazy and dying from syphilis. And so the risk associated with sexuality wasn't just pregnancy. It was like, you, know, you might, you might go insane if you have sex with the wrong person. Um, <laughs> I mean, hey, syphilis or not, that could happen to you, I think, right? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So syphilis, you know, syphilis, I think syphilis had an enormous impact on on sexual mores. And it has it's had this kind of like this lasting impact about the way we viewed the past. And then obviously when we got antibiotics and we got rid of syphilis and gonorrhea and and uh and chlamydia, it was like, well, that's 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 when the sexual revolution happened. It didn't happen in the sixties for no reason. It happened because of antibiotics and the pill. And, and so I think that people just really underestimate how much history is driven by, uh, by diseases and coronavirus is not that bad on the standard of historical diseases. And so you might think, okay, well then that, then we shouldn't be worried about it. But the thing is that our society is fragile to the impacts of pandemics in a way that previous societies weren't right? Spanish flu doesn't cripple your entire economy because everything is local. But now everybody's supply chain is around the entire world. And so we're just, we're much more susceptible to shocks like this. I mean, coronavirus is bad. You know, one out of uh, every hundred people who get infected dying would be very bad. And like, you know, a, a much larger percentage of them having potentially permanent lung damage and neurological issues is bad. But I mean, smallpox might kill 30% of people when it hits a new area. So, <laughs> so we're, yeah, I mean, and we don't know, right. The numbers seem to be, it's, it's been night. I mean, I, I won't, I shouldn't really talk about it because <laughs> I've learned about some things about the immune system and up ways to upbuild your immune system, you know, working where I'm at now and uh, different things you can do and what, how that really plays into protecting yourself as an individual and, and maybe why, you know, certain populations would have, um, you know, more compromised immune systems or more higher death rates, but I don't know. I haven't really been following it. Cause I just, you know, luckily for me, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not in a position where I like really need to know these things. I'm like, I'm happy to, to live my day-to-day -day life without, you know, knowing the exact number, you know, I know, I know it goes back and forth. Like some people that what I get, what I get that trickles through and the things that I listen to is just that it's still a lot in the air. And yeah, we don't really know, but I think the best evidence is that before we, yeah, can really see like, okay, what was the actual infection and death rates? And yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I think if anyone tells you, you know, for sure, then, then they're, then they're trying to sell you something or they're, they're, they're trapped ideologically in something. But, uh, but the best evidence is consistently kind of comes back. We've had lots of points that have come back where, uh, that the, the IFR, the infective fatality rate, is somewhere between 0.6, right? So mm -hmm. six out of every thousand people who get infected and 0.12, so, right, or 0.15. Mm -hmm. So uh, most recently they had data from Spain and France that came out. It looks like pretty solid studies, you know, randomized population, subsets, everything. And it looks like um, 
IFR in 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 France was one uh, in Spain was one point two, and then in in uh, in France it was like point nine or something like that. So um, it's much much worse uh, worse than than anything that we've had for a long time, mm-hmm. and and we we have we've built our society around efficiency and efficient. There's, you know, are you familiar with the idea of the efficiency redundancy trade-off? No, please elaborate. So, um, it it basically, the more efficient you make something, the less redundancy there is in that system. Right. And so efficiency actually fragilizes you. Mm. Right. So, um, you know, real, real simple example. It's like, okay, let's say that you have that, you know, you're going to be really efficient in how many dishes you have in your house, right? You don't want to have to do lots of dishes. So you're just going to have one plate. Mm-hmm. That's great. Right. You're hyper efficient. You break your plate. No plate. <laughs> you, you can't do anything. <laughs> right. So, um, there's lots of like, you know, a, a better, another really important example of this would be something like, okay, uh, China has the, say that the cheapest high quality labor available. So lots of supply chains end up in China, right? Mm-hmm. So now more and more the entire world invests in China because that's the most efficient place that you can be in the market. And like, okay, well you could have a factory in China and a factory in the United States. And then if something goes wrong in your factory, a factory in China, then you can back up your processes here in the States. Mm-hmm. Now that's not efficient, right? So you're, you're going you're gonna to cut all those corners but the problem is that then when something bad happens, you, uh, you're screwed, right? Um, same thing, for, you know, and then, uh, you know, the, the terrible thing about our system is that we, you know, when you make yourself fragile and efficient as a corporation, um, you get more profits. Mm. Now, as you get bigger and you get more profits, then our our government actually now tries to provide that resiliency for you by making you too big to fail. Mm. Right. So we we've created this perverse incentive structure where all these companies that are that are essentially making our system as fragile as possible are uh, are are now going to be protected by our government, which means basically protected by every individual taxpayer. So that's why we're you know we're spending trillions of dollars to bail out. Um, bailout industry and you know the average americans getting a thousand two hundred dollars right um so uh to go back to your original question the 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 big thing was um you know what how is this creating the future well perhaps we're going to come out of this with a lesson about like you can't trust to have all your supply chain in china especially when china views you as an ideological rival and is trying to win the, you know, the game of state against you. Um, there's a, uh, I don't know if you follow Eric Weinstein, but his podcast, the portal is my po- favorite podcast right now. And on one of the recent episodes is either, I think it was the Ryan holiday episode or holiday, the guy who wrote um, the obstacles, the way uh, he, he talks about his wife saying like COVID is, is bringing the future. Everything that was, was going to happen is happening. Right. So like, there's been research for a while that shows that um, for a lot of jobs, remote work is more efficient than, than work in the office. It's like, well, that's, that's now, right? Mm-hmm. Twitter just said that they're never sending, they're never going to require people to go back, right? Yeah. My um, wife just got hired by Google right before 
right right before COVID happened. So as she was going to be onboarded at Google, like she was scheduled to go to Mountain View. Oh wow! And then boom, nope, not going to Mountain View. Here's a computer. Get started. She's oh, never met her coworkers in person. <laughs> She's on this team that that she knows only via online. Um, and you know, uh, they're they're not gonna. They've already said they're not gonna bring their workforce back at least this year. So in 2020, she's never going to go into a Google office. Well, so that, I mean, that's, that's, that's the future arriving. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that the replica, the, the, the whole way we build cities may change or the way that people live, right? Like, you know, if you don't, if like, imagine the whole tech workforce is all concentrated in San Francisco and that's, that's just driven San Francisco, Seattle, um, Boston, just a few other places, Sydney, like all of that could go away. Mm -hmm. Right. All those people could move somewhere else because like, why pay the money to be in San Francisco, especially in a world where you can't even socialize with people. (laughs) Yeah. It's what's the point of having that badass penthouse apartment or whatever condo and so yeah, they have a really good answer to that question. I don't, I don't know what, I guess in my little world of movement culture, what's mm-hmm. interesting to me is that I felt like we're trapped in the gym, right? Like I, I've been trying to solve this problem with our online courses and everything. Mm-hmm. So for years we've had this, um, we've noticed this thing that people come to our seminar and they'll say, Oh, this is life changing. This is amazing. This is like the best thing that we've ever experienced in the world, in the movement world. Oh, thank you. We'll come back a year later and we'll, we'll ask them, what have you been doing? And they'll say, well, mostly fighting monkey stuff or mostly eat a portal stuff. It's like, well, why is that? And I don't know, maybe, maybe they lied to me, but uh, (laughs) um, what I come to think was that actually it's much easier to adopt those practices when you already have a gym practice because practicing, you know, Kitty Jaheen's, you know, circles uh, is something that you can do in the aerobics room in your gym, but practicing wall run tree climbs is something you have to go find the tree for. And so we, 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 we have a cultural script around exercise that it's something that you do in the gym. And it's so strong and so persistent that I think that it's really hard to get in edgewise. And in a way, the parkour industry, particular the parkour movement, particularly in the States, kind of like got gobbled by that, right? We all went into the gyms. And I, I think it's so interesting because like, excuse me, I don't know if you noticed this. Tell me if this was the same in Colorado, but it seems to me that a lot of times actually the, the outdoor community kind of died, Right. Like there was a whole group of people who were willing to go par- do parkour outdoors. And then some of those guys go start a business that's indoors. And then you attract this massively more people who, who are willing to train indoors than are willing to train outdoors, but they're not actually the same people. And the people who started the community, a lot of them disappear because, because now they can't get anyone to go out and train with them outdoors. And they're not, and that was a big part of the reason why they trained in the first place. Um, and so in, in some ways it's like the gyms were birthed out of the outdoor community and then they killed it. That is a, I mean, I, I, I definitely know what you're talking about. 
And I definitely, I don't know that I've seen the exact same pattern here in Colorado, but it does seem that like, <clears throat> I do see that there's two populations sort of of people that prefer training outdoors and people that really gravitate and love spending their time training inside. And, and there's, there's a little bit of a Venn diagram happening where the, that can really bolster the outdoor training. And I think that's what we saw at first. It was kind of like boosted everyone's skills, people that really like being outside, having access to like really good shapes, consistent shapes to practice with. So you don't have to go find that tree or whatever. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the outdoor practitioners, they used, I would say they, they used the gym kind of to, to catapult themselves in, to the next level a little bit. But then those shapes in, with inside the gym become too familiar and it becomes harder and harder to, it's like, I've been sharpening my sh sword on uh, a certain kind of grit sandstone mm -hmm. and I need a new sandstone now. I'm like, I'm already as sharp as I can get on this one. I need a, I need something finer grade and I'm only going to find that outside or I'm only going to find it in a different environment because the gym can't. I mean, maybe it can, maybe that's the future. Who knows? But it's hard to make a gym so a bit able to be updated that it actually can progress with you and provide new environment context that you don't end up mastering and eventually just kind of becoming bored with potentially, or, um, <clears throat> and it might be to be played into the psychology of somebody who likes training outside. You know, there's a lot of other benefits you get, like there's an exploration side of it. I think people that gravitate towards the gym, they are a little bit more fascinated and excited about the progression of like sheer athletic or skill development maybe. Um, but I think for me and a lot of the people I know that train outdoors a lot, it's, there's a more to it than that. It's actually, it's less, even though they, they get probably more skill and more, um, competency with, with the athletics and the tricks than most of the people that train indoors. There's this, there's this intangible component of being able to explore and being able to adapt to the environment that starts to, you just get diminishing returns after a while, spending one time in the gym. And then all the gyms start to look alike as well because they're all trying to kind of cater to that style. So then it kind of just, I don't know if that made sense, but basically, yeah, it just, it become the gym starts to specialize you where uh, I think a true outdoor practitioner wants to become more of a, more of a generalist in some ways like they want to be able to adapt to more environments and then they yeah i mean what well, we've been talking a lot about on my podcast is the idea of uh, of uh, of the ultimate aim of movement practice as being the development of the capacity to solve problems mm. every every um every kind of practice every environment every little set of tasks has something that's general about how you learn to solve movement problems and something that's specific and some areas become very specific and that can be very rewarding but you're actually not you're not gaining that much outside of it mm -hmm. so uh, for me there's there's so much more that's stacked in that experience of training outdoors and if we're going back to that idea of, of, of what the future is for like parkour people, it's like the future is the past. The future is like, you got to go train outdoors, right? There's no gym anymore. Um, yeah. The cool thing is uh, you can train outdoors, right? Like, um, I don't know how many people realize this, but the most recent research is like, there's a lot of research now that shows that 
outdoor transmission is very rare, right? Mm -hmm. Like almost all transmission of COVID-19 seems to be in indoor spaces. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, wear a mask, maintain your social distance, but like people should not be afraid to go train parkour right now. Well, and, and at the risk of, obviously this is not medical advice. I'm not any kind of whatever. Don't listen to me for that. But what I've been learning about the immune system and things that I have like discovered, it's just like being outside and soaking in vitamin D is like t number one on the list of things you can do to, to boost your health and make yourself more resilient so that even if you were infected, you yeah. can, might not even notice it, you know, there's good research that shows and exercise is a huge component of it as well. Yeah. There's good, uh, really good information also that shows that vitamin D in particular is protective against uh, COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. That started to come through recently. Yeah. So, yeah. so go out in the sun, go play, you know, be safe. Don't cough on each other. Um, but, but, uh, but yeah, the, the past, the past is, uh, past is prologue maybe for, for where we're going as a community. Yeah. It's almost like we reached like the, you know, <clears throat> someone described it to me once as like, we went out, like we're, we've been looking outward for new and new things. And it seems like we might, there, to me, there seems, and this is total, conjecture but it seems like there's a shift towards like returning to all right what's what's the like you said the past like where we, we need to know ourselves better and where we came from and we're not going to be i don't think we're going to be doing that um without returning to like you said like more primal instincts or at least to balance the expansion into technology we have to kind of like I think we have to dive deeper to like even it out almost like, does that make any sense? I feel like if we, if we ride the, the technological development too hard without kind of also balancing it out with these movement practices, we start to feel like we lose humanity or something, or it becomes unsustainable. And, and I think well, it's just a hypothesis, but it's just like, I wonder if it's something that is like a natural occurrence to help balance out this, this technological expansion and, you know, the, the ability to work remotely, we also want to now, all right, we have to have more primal instinct movement practices and less, um, yeah, I don't know what you were about to say, but probably something. I mean, that's very much behind the whole idea of evolve, move, play is, right? Like mm -hmm. that, uh, Eric Weinstein, I'll quote him again. He said uh, something I really liked. He said, we've become gods, but for the wisdom, mm -hmm. right? So technology has has made us more and more powerful um but we're not any wiser about how to use that power mm -hmm. and in fact you know like what my buddy john verveke argues is in fact we've lost access to the tools that build wisdom right that we've killed essentially our wisdom traditions mm -hmm. and that we need to recover them in order to be able to to deal with stuff so that's it's a lot of essentially what we're trying to do with, with Evolve Move Play is essentially help people reconnect to the fundamental aspects of being a, a living embodied creature in the environment. Um, because uh, without that foundation, it's like we're just we're just experiencing these things so fast and they're disturbing. We don't, we don't recognize what we're losing. Mm -hmm. um, and we, and we don't, we, it's like, we can't even know what's good. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's like, well, there's the whole, there's the Joseph. I'm actually not that familiar. I'm getting more and more interested in this stuff, but there's like the, the hero's journey, right? The Joseph Campbell. And there's a portion of that journey where you have to, I, I, forgive me, you have to correct me if I'm you know, out of speak here, but there's a part where you rescue your father, right? And you know, like John Bravaki is a, another, he's, I know he works alongside her in the same departments as Peterson. And yeah. mm-hmm. that's one of the things that Jordan Peterson often talks about is you go to go re- under and rescue your, your debt, your dying father and bring him into the, into like the future. But there is, you know, wisdom down there, right. That he still kind of holds. And there's kind of this meta, meta thing happening potentially with the whole of humanity where we were having to rescue our like you said wisdom traditions and like collectively rescue like all right whoa okay we've we've gone too far now we got to go back and get something that you know got us here to to know what's good or know what was valuable that brought us this far does that make sense yeah i was uh, i think i think it was eric weinstein again who uh, on his podcast was talking about someone he was talking to was talking about the idea that no, it was Razib Khan. Razib Khan on his podcast was saying that history uh, professors have a hard time getting people to take an interest in anything that happens before 1960. Really? Mm. Yeah. And, and this is such a problem because uh, history is happening faster. So mm-hmm. like, I think of, um, I think the central problem that we have in our culture is basically that, uh, um, so imagine you have an exponential uh, an exponential technological curve, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the technology changes faster and faster. And think of tech, think of culture as something that that works to match the organism and its needs. It's it's based biological drives with the environment, and the environment is you know is the ecology, but it's also the economic and technological environment, right? So, you know, a basic human need is companionship, love, sexuality, right? So we're not, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I was growing up, like, how did you meet that need? Well, we didn't have Tinder, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's like, if you wanted to try to date necessarily the way that people did earlier, it might not work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole, the, 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 the whole, it's like we have this whole module in our culture that has to get updated because now new technology has changed it. Um, well, when you're, when you're, um, if, if you think about this as like writing code, the faster you have to write the code, the more likely you are to have bad code. And also the more likely you are to pr- produce path to dep- uh, dependent outcomes where like, okay, I have this bad code and I have to write the next piece of code based on that bad code. And so we're, we're accumulating junk evolutionarily (laughs) because we don't have enough we don't have uh because it's happening so fast that we can't update in an elegant way and this this happens like at the base evolutionary level right like this is actually how your genes evolve is that stuff will just get dragged all over when you're under really uh really excessive speed of selection um and so i think the only way that we can adapt to that is we have to we have to be able to to look back more effectively and we have to be able to like extract the wisdom principles from the past, from different cultures from in a, in a much more efficient way. Because um, if we sort of, if we have a naive kind of cultural response, that's not, that's not, that's, 
we have to have something that accelerates our ability to respond to the situation in the same way that that we're accelerating our ability to create new situations mm -hmm. so technology creates new situations but it's like wisdom is where you get the ability to respond elegantly and and so if if this is doing this and this is doing this or this it's like we're we're getting more and more powerful and stupider and stupider about that power <laughs> yeah and the whole system becomes like you said just increasingly fragile and built you know we have the same foundation potentially of wisdom that we had collectively that you know like you said maybe in 1960 or who knows when when it started to really taper off and all of a sudden it's just a lot of it's a house of cards and there's a lot of expansion here that we don't know exactly where the foundation really sits yeah uh, that that's like sturdy and that we can and it's and it's hard to update that because we're having to update it right now as a as a whole planet in some ways you know especially with this covid situation it's like we're at we're being called to to like settle and agree on certain global approaches and and it's really hard to update because we're gonna have to integrate all these cultures and what what's the through line of wisdom between you know some dude in an island in the south pacific and you know this hotshot new york bank or whatever you know like those two lives have to kind of have some common ground we're gonna have to find it it sounds like yeah we well, interestingly, I mean, maybe we're going to live in a less interconnected world or maybe it'll be interconnected. Oh, yeah, exactly. We could, sorry, go ahead. But uh, for some reason, I wanted to ask you this. Like, did you watch the, uh, the movie Fight Club before you started parkour? I did. Yeah. How, I think I, before I started it. It might have been like around the same time or I don't know. Because like for me, I, you know, I saw it when I was 19 and, mm -hmm. you know, and then I started parkour when I was 23. But um, do you remember how that movie impacted you? The first time I watched it, I don't think I fully understood it, but I think I just was, there was a, a huge resonance happening with just the themes, like even themes that I think if I watched it now, I'd really understand kind of what the meaning behind each character is a lot better mm -hmm. just because I've been more interested in story and, and how people um, represent things through pieces of art like that. But yeah, I just was, I connected to it deeply in, in that you know, it is this dichotomy of just like where, where, where your instinct and your biology is being, is like dissecting you, uh, or, or rather the society and the technology is dissecting, you know, this chunk of you away and, and, and how there's this, there's something that will find its way through, you know, perhaps violently, like in that film. Um, if it's real. I, I think that film is, for me, it's kind of like the, it's the scream against the alienation of the modern world. And probably like as eloquent as anything, right? There's that moment where they're sitting in the bar, right? And Durden says, you know, we work jobs that we hate to make money that we don't need to buy things uh, to make money to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't like. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like uh, through Verveke and Peterson, all these guys, there's this, this, you know, this articulation, this idea of the mean crisis, right? That, that, that fundamentally we have more wealth, more power, more health in a lot of ways um, 
uh, well, in some ways, not so much, but in other ways, it's like, you know, you have enough food and you, you know, lots of the diseases that used to kill you aren't around, um, you know, live way longer and you're less likely to get assaulted. And, and yet we're, there's something also that's deeply, deeply wrong. And I think that kind of like sums it up. And it's a sense of, of alienation. One thing that, um, that Vivek talks about is this idea that, that the life feels surreal, right? When we're disconnected from what gives a sense of meaning into our life, it starts to feel as if it's not real, which is like a lot of people are experiencing that with COVID-19, right? It's like, this is not the world that I know. Um, and so in, in fight club, they, they come together and they create a tribe and they engage in intense physical practice and they take risk. And through that, they get some kind of growth that becomes deeply meaningful to the individuals. Right. And so to me, that parallels so deeply what parkour offered to a generation of mostly young men, but also women. Right. And um and so we you know i come back a few years like fight club blew my mind and i wanted to start a fight club but i didn't right but i was i was training martial yeah, arts we actually started parkour fight club this <laughs> like, we, i remember we, that whatever and i was like you you, you you skinny kids who have no martial arts background none of you none of you want to fight me swinging, badly man. hurt yeah. <laughs> um but uh but yeah i was i actually had a boxing club at university and stuff like that but uh but we, 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 so I saw that and I, I was so, it resonated so deeply with me. Like, I mean, there, I would say probably the only other work of, of art that's had such a like profound meaning for me right from the beginning was like the Lord of the Rings. Mm. But you, there it was. And it was like the question, it was the question that we all had, right? Um, but nobody could articulate. But then when I, came, uh, when I experienced parkour, I went back to the movie and it didn't have nearly the same meaning because, because they're almost inversions of each other. In Fight Club, ultimately, the path out of the alienation of society becomes destructive and it becomes anti-society. Mm. But parkour was like this ethos of be strong to be useful, be something that could help society. And it seemed to answer the questions well. But then I like go back to it even later and I see I see this, this, the nihilism that creeps into it. And I see the, um, the, the cult aspect of the cult of Tyler Durden's personality. And I realize that whether it's parkour or yoga or anything or meditation, like that movie, isn't just like a scream against the, the alienation of society. It's also a warning that anything anything that captures the power of the tribe and the power of, of, um, of, of shared effort and of intensity um, also has this potential to be very easily hijacked to something dark. Mm. So it's like, so for me, it was just a, it's a, it's a really beautiful kind of thing to kind of keep in my head about like um, how to be Tyler Durden, but not Tyler Durden, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, there is no formula to like, as soon as you try to nail it down, it becomes an ideology. It becomes something that Dog. robs you of life, robs you of that ex existence. And it just becomes something new that you'll end up screaming against mm -hmm. or whispering against if that's the appropriate. <laughs> um, 
Well, if we go like connected to the Peterson thing, right? Yeah, please. The hero has two roles. There is, there's chaos when it presents itself, right? Let's say COVID-19, right? The heroic individual is the person who looks at a problem like COVID-19 and says, I'm not going to run away from it. What can I do to attack it and make it better, right? Right now, our heroes are doctors, right? That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the hero that is needed right now. That's the person who's prepared, who has, the, who has a sword to fight this particular dragon. But there's another hero, which is the hero who confronts the tyranny of society, right? So not only do we have the problem that COVID-19 is, is this you know, novel pandemic moving through our population, we have the problem that we have the most incompetent people possible in some sense in office. We have the problem that, that the World Health Organization is deeply, you know, deeply controlled by China and you know it was lying to us saying the masks don't work there's no human to human transmission you don't need to be worried just a couple months ago oh my god and you know the cdc was saying masks don't work right so we we face this dual problem which is like this thing is out there this is the dragon you got to confront it but also the thing the, the society itself is fundamentally dysfunctional and that has to be confronted too right and you always have those two things so but there's but there's this again there's this this ambivalence right without the ambivalence you become dogmatic and, and destructive right so so in fight club the dogma becomes that society is utterly corrupt and has to be reset hmm. but what we but what we need is yes we need to attack what's stagnant in our society but also we need to go back and harvest what's wise about our society, right? So that's the, you descend into the underworld and bring, you confront the tyranny of your society. That's, that's father culture. But you also have to go back into the underworld and bring back the bones of father culture. Um, and, uh, and so I think that that's, uh, that's, uh, that's what's hard to, to hold on to is, is these, these roles. There's also this role of, of um, sometimes when you have to to confront the, the tyranny of society so there's the dragon slayer right the dragon slayer attacks the chaotic mm -hmm. but there's also like um uh, i don't know if it's as easily described but you could think of it as the hero who brings back the waters of life yeah in in nafsa meaning uh peterson's book he talks about um uh, i i can't I, I struggle to go find it in the book again but it's basically the story of a tailor and there's a hole in the sky and all the water is, is pouring out through this hole and then nobody else is getting any water. So you have the parched kingdom. And he goes and sows the sky closed there and it allows the rains to fall. Right? And somehow the, the sky is ripped open somewhere and there's no rain somewhere else because the kingdom itself has become too tyrannical. And so the, that tailor, he basically brings something chaotic back to the world. And I had this funny realization that it feels like to me parkour is both, right? Hmm. Because you can think of when you when you're confronted by a jump is that like that's the confrontational chaos. To go out and confront a jump is to voluntarily partake in that heroic journey. But also what parkour did was to reimagine a ordered urban space 
as all of a sudden having all these dragons that could be confronted. Mm -hmm. Right? They invited back, you know, and I'm like, think about where parkour was born. Parkour is born in these terrible, brutalist, modernist, like suburbs on the outskirts of Paris, like the most oppressive places to live in the world, right? Designed to destroy the human spirit in every possible way. And these kids say, we're going to create the, the beauty of human art and movement through these spaces. We're going to find a way to love this horribly ugly city. And mm. Blocks of concrete will become, you know, will become opportunities for art. So oh, I love it. I love that. you. Yeah. I love the way you put that. It's amazing. And I totally agree. That's, um, that's what we're doing as, and then that's what they did for, you know, they'd started. That was the, that was a, a new approach. That's kind of like fight club. Like you said, it's just a, dude. I a mean, stream. have you read Julie Angel's book? Uh, yeah, I have. So how does it all start? I can't remember, but <laughs> so Jan and David, Jan Hinatra and David Bell, are at an arcade and for reasons that are unremembered they almost get into a fist fight so Jan realizes in the middle of this confrontation that David is friends with one of his friends and he decides to like okay we'll be buddies but like the way that they're friends is to challenge each other constantly right so it's like who can get you know who can do the most push-ups who can do the most squats who can lift this car who can get punched in the stomach the most times people don't like it's kind of forgotten that like in the origin of parkour, there was actually a lot of martial arts. All the, a lot of these kids had a martial arts background and they were training this together. They were fighting. Right. So it literally was in some sense fight club. Like it was, it was so close to what fight club was. And there was so much about it that was about confrontation. You know, if you read Stefan Vigro's stories about his experience with David, it's like David's a Tyler Durden character for sure. Right? He is incredibly angry at society and he's expressing it this way. And he is pushing like, you know, you're not allowed into his little cult unless you are willing to like do everything that he asks of you. Mm -hmm. Stand outside. Right. Or, you know, Stand, like miles of QM, same thing. But <laughs> yeah, if you're, if you're on the edge of a building and you don't jump, he pushes you off the building. Right? Oh, like they hang from each other's hands on the edges of buildings. Mm -hmm. Uh, I showed Stefan Vigru a game that we play where we, um, where we lock hands with each other on top of a curb and we try to wrestle each other off the curb. And he's like, oh yeah, Steph uh, David and I used to play that. We would play it 12 feet high. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in some sense, like the origins of parkour is the real life story of Fight Club. Mm. Um, it's quite, it's in, but there's this interesting place where like it, it bifurcates, right? Yeah. There's, there's the place where like this, this desire to grow is, is motivated so much by anger. And then there's, then there's a place where it goes into a place of love, right? You know, Stefan says, right. In some sense, training with David as powerful and impactful as it was, it was like training to the dark side. Mm. And then he went and trained with Williams and Williams was like the light side of the force. And in the book, there's a moment where Williams is, is uh, he's, I think he's 11 years old when this realization arises for him. He, uh, he does this jump and it transforms him, right? He feels like, you know, because his brothers could do this jump, he's so much younger than them. And he comes and he's able to do this jump. Um, it's like, 
it's this rite of passage for him. And it, it feels like totally transformational. And then he brings his friend and his friend does the same jump. And he can see that the jump didn't mean to his friend what it meant to him. And then he makes this switch, this realization that what he's there for isn't the jump, it's the meaning. Mm. And, and so it's like, that's, that's where my work is, right? Like, that's what I've been trying to do. But like, Williams made that realization in like, I don't know, 1995 or something, <laughs> you know? And yeah. he was an 11 year old boy. Mm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so there, you know, the reason I wanted to, to bring us back to this like fight club thing is it's like, you know, I can tell you what Eric Weinstein says and what Jordan Peterson says and, you know, Daniel Schmachtenberger talking about how, you know, we're stuck in this self-extinguishing cycle of, of exponential stuff, but I'm mostly just re-articulating that, right? Mm -hmm. But there's something interesting about the fact that the movement community, the parkour people that are, we share interest in this. Like there's so many people in our community who are, who are picking this stuff up. And there's like a kind of insight that's coming out of it. It's like, I'm having chats with John Berveke because he's intrigued by how, how parkour in some sense is like a seed for a practice or a set of practices of wisdom cultivation that can be a solution for the problems that we face in the world. I mean, what I just was illuminated with was just the, you know, what part of what we're doing is we're getting back in our bodies, right? That is part of the wisdom that we've lost. Just the Absolutely. ability to be inside your body and using like your humanity and just a base, you know, interacting, knowing things are real, feeling the pain, you know, the fight club, it's, it's at least the pain can be, you know, a, a measurement of what's authentic in that world. And, uh, you know, if you shin yourself or at least, <laughs> you know, ankle thingy, whatever it is like that, that is, that is feedback that is real for the first time for many people. And I think, I think that's partially, yeah, like that's, that's, that's sort of a shift is we're like, all right, well, let's, let's at least get back in our bodies. We could go a little bit further, you know, into some circuitry, but, um, and it's not to say that some people aren't, you know, like Elon Musk is a, a huge tech wizard, right. But he's also kind of on the front lines of doing some of this stuff and, you know, I think he's one of the people that's trying to bring the reins, you know, in, in your analogy through, you know, he's, he's rebelled against, you know, the, them trying to order to, to become too orderly, I guess, with his Tesla factories, for example. And now he's like, well, you know what, if I can't do business the way I want to do it, I'm going to go to Texas or somewhere else where they'll let me um, live, you know? And, but I think it's fascinating. I think that's probably what is so interesting about why Verveke is probably interested in it is just, you know, this idea of just using our bodies again, like we've, we've neglected just being inside our human forms and the, the stronger, the more like I've been able to train and I've, I've developed like a lot more muscular tissue and just like, I, I, I understand my biology at least internally a lot better now, the more I just recognize like how odd it is in some ways that some people are, it's, it, it looks so out of balance to me. And when, when I see certain people on the street and I'm just like, they don't know that's, it, it's really just a, it's kind of sad that they don't know to me that, that there's even these existing things, you know, there's their muscular tissues or their posture is so weakened that I think they benefit just from like learning how to, to, to feel their body, you know? Um, yeah. 
do you think that's part, do you think that's accurate in a way that just, you know, we've gone just too far outside our bodies and part of our wisdom recovery is just people learning how to get back inside their bodies, just more exercise, but not just more exercise. I think what you're onto something with the movement in the parkour communities is exercise with the human body as the kind of primary focus, the mover and not, you know, being on a bike as much or being or the, just training the muscle and treating yeah. the machine. Have you run into a, to like the interviews I've done with Mark Walsh and like the whole idea of the embodiment community? No, I haven't. Is there a nugget you can share from that? Yeah. yeah. So um, let's say you can train, you can, you can, you can practice something as a way of like attaining a skill. You can practice something as a way of a, a, achieving something externally. Or you can practice something as a way of shifting your experienced state of the world. Mm. So there's a whole set of traditions um, that have kind of gotten very deep in that. That's like the internal martial arts in the Asian world. That's yoga. That's um, like various traditions of dance and um, and therapy and like uh, body oriented therapy. And all of that comes together kind of in this world of embodiment. And so Mark Walsh introduced me to that. And then that's also very congruent with kind of the work of, uh, of Verveke, right? Verveke is a cognitive scientist and he's part of a generation of cognitive scientists, third gen cognitive science. It's called 4E cognitive science, right? So the four E's are cognition is embodied, it's embedded, it's enacted and it's extended, right? So what that means is, you know, if you think back to Descartes' idea, I think therefore I am. Right? That's the idea that the, the thinker is somehow central and everything else is, is de- derivable from the thinker. And so when we start trying to build thinking machines, we think that we can build the capacity for thought, the, the capacity to solve problems and see things and perceive things um, in, into a, a just sort of like incorporeal thing. But it turns out that's very hard. Like a, the very basic thing is like make a computer recognize what a glass is. Okay. So mm. these two objects are meaningfully the same to us. Or let's, let's look at this object. Okay. So this object is metal and has uh, a handle. And this object is glass and does not have a handle. And they're two different shapes. Right? So how do I, how do I have, the, 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 the computer recognized that this and this are in the same class of objects, but say a blue glass ball that is enclosed is not, is excluded. Mm. So it turns out that this is very easy to us because, because this object affords something meaningful to us. It affords the capacity to grasp. It's a cup because we can grasp it. And it affords the capacity to have something poured into it and to contain that thing, right? So if it had a hole in the bottom, it's not a cup anymore. Mm-hmm. All right, but those things are only meaningful because they, they're, they, they fit our body. They're fitted to our body. They're coupled to our capacities and they afford us something. I can drink from this cup. So if you want to teach a, a computer to recognize that, the best way to do it is to actually give it a hand to pick something up. Oh, wow. So we, we, what we realize is that the entire way that we perceive and in our whole capacity to think is actually derived from embodiedness. Like this is a central realization of, of cognitive therapy. So our uh, cognitive science. So then the next level of that is not only do we think through a body, 
that body is embedded in an environment. And the way that we think is extended into our environment. And then in order to think, we actually have to act, right? You, you, you can only, like, thinking is basically action abstracted. Right? Peterson says, we, th we think that our thoughts may die so that we don't have to. But you can't actually think something unless you have some kind of action pattern that you've actually experienced to some degree that can help you derive that thought. So as a child, you don't think lots of things because you haven't experienced those things. You have to first build this vocabulary. Then, then you can start extracting it and abstracting it into your mind. And then um, it's extended, which is to say that uh, our cognition is, is networked into an entire set of agents, right? Like my thoughts are not my thoughts alone. They're also your thoughts and all these other people's thoughts. And it's very difficult to say where they begin and end. Um, history, the whole thing. So we have these, this four E's of cognitive science. So, um, so our tradition in some sense has, has, has robbed us of the wisdom of the body. Mm. Mm -hmm. So this is like Christianity, um, wonderful, ba uh, bad things about Christianity. But one thing that, that happened within the history of Christianity is this, uh, this idea of, of the body as, um, profane and of the sacred as separate and existing on another level. And uh, Verveke calls this the, the two worlds mythology. It's not only in Christianity, it's also in Platonism, right? It's also in Buddhism. Um, like Nietzsche argues for the reclamation of the embodied experience. So there's, there's something that's been there for a long time. Um, and, and parkour, uh, among other things, is a is a pathway towards like using your physicality as a tool to cultivate yourself as a human being, rather than just to be healthy or to look good and attract someone sexually, right? And and I think that's why I was thinking about this tomorrow this morning actually this idea that like there's something almost incipiently spiritual about parkour as a practice. Um, I use that word with hesitation because I think that spirituality for me, spirituality is a word that, um, that has certain implications that allow people to sell a lot of bullshit under that label. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but, but there's something interesting about this, this quest that people start to go down within parkour that you see many people start to find other questions that are related to that. Right. So many people in the parkour community are, are interested in Jordan Peterson. Right. Um, or they're going, they end up going into like, uh, nature, wilderness awareness stuff. Um, animism, shamanism. Yeah. Or like uh, uh, like psychedelics, right? How many people who are parkour people are really into like DMT trips and you know and mushrooms? It's like th there's something about it that's in that's that's beginning to initiate this process of proactive self transformation. Uh, I, I'm I'm with you there. I think I think so. I think that's one of the reasons I certainly latched onto it. Yeah. Like where, why, why it has taken me in and out of a perceived parkour um, norm or culture or community that, you know, 
in my view, is just broader than what a lot of people look at it as because I see the parkour community as encompassing, or maybe not the parkour community, but whatever, just people that practice parkour, they also see this trend of they, they, they get embodied, they, they, but they're on this whatever spiritual path, we, know, we, we can call it where they're trying to ascertain certain insights and wisdoms about themselves and about the experience of life itself. Mm-hmm. And through the practice of parkour, they get to a certain point, but they just like being inside a gym can constrict you at one point, you know, in, in the, your development as a parkour athlete, potentially, if you, yeah. if you, if you constrict yourself to only training parkour, it's the same kind of constriction. And so you might want to get into animism, animism or mushrooms or whatever it is. Um, the rope, you know, Tim Sheaf and in, in the, in the WEC method, you know, I actually picked up a rope yeah, yeah. Um, just because I'm curious, you know, I'm like, all right, let's see what this rope's about. <laughs> I've, been with the rope. I've been fucking with the rope for a few hours or a few weeks. And uh, I, I mean, I don't have, I'm not going to like give it a, a review necessarily, but I just think that it is conceptually fascinating to me that we're tying left and right hemispheres of your brain and, and body together and trying to at least get like new neurological pathways formed mm-hmm. across those, those hemispheres, because I see that as kind of this connection we're trying to build, you know, throughout this whole conversation is like this, we're trying to bridge order and chaos in certain ways. We're trying to bridge, um, not maybe not bridge order and chaos, but bridge the, the, you know, the, the dealing with order and chaos in a way that, you know, is, is new and, integrated in, in some in some way and bridge the technology with the biology and and um find you know our center and i think uh it's just another part of the inward practice but whatever the rope's cool you know i got nothing against the rope i just uh, i don't have anything saying that you like yeah you're going to be searching and you know whatever tim sheaf had done a lot of other things um and, and you know and i've done a lot of other things that we'll see which ones are actually fruitful we don't know yet exactly but yeah. So I think that we need this marriage of, for lack of a better word, let's call it a spiritual quest mm. or a, uh, um, uh, a, a quest for self-transcendence anyways, with also like a rooted epistemology in, in like a scientific epistemology, right? For, for people who aren't familiar, epistemology is, um, is the is the knowledge of how we ascertain truth, right? That's what that means, right? So, so what is your what is your way of recognizing what is truthful? Mm. And that's what I don't like about spirituality because spirit implies that there is a, a like a metaphysical thing outside of us, right? That's the real thing, and and then you know you see people make all sorts of sort of yeah, uh, uh, my my friend Todd Hargrove has this term deepities, right? Well, they'll say something that sounds very profound, but if you think about it, it either means something mundane, like we're all just energy, man, right? <laughs> we're all just energy, man, right? It's all just it's just waves of energy. It's like okay, so on a quantum physics level, right? Like mass and energy are equivalent, right? Or general relativity level. Okay, cool. Um, so you're implying something that that is completely uncontroversial and has almost no applicable meaning or what you're trying to do is, is use that scientific meaning to uphold some 
bullshit about how I'm going to be able to kill you with my chi if I uh, build my spiritual powers enough, right? <laughs> so this is the other interesting thing is like I feel like parkour also also works really well in a sense as a place to to build a good epistemology. Not only parkour, I see like I also see a lot of like really strong epistemology coming out of like Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Like when I look at the people who have the most rational takes on, um, on COVID-19 who aren't, uh, who aren't virologists or epidemiologists, it's like there's a lot of martial artists and, and, uh, and, and parkour athletes and stuff like that. But it's always the ones who like do real shit. It's like not the ones who, who just like dance and play around on the ground. <laughs> yeah. Right? Fair. Because, because when you, because when, if you lie to yourself about the effectiveness of your wushu routine or about how much of a movement generalist you are because you do kirijihin circles on the ground and, you know, uh, like corticapium circles or whatever, it's like there's no, there's no fitness function. You don't get punished by it. But parkour, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, boxing, judo, all these things will slap you in the face if you think that you can do something and you can't. Mm -hmm. It's like parkour athletes don't get to pretend that the truth doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah. Unless you're as talented as Daniel Obaka. Then, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like he could, his, his capacities were so far away, he could just believe that God willed him to do things. But um, <laughs> the rest of us fall sometimes <laughs> and realize that we didn't choose it. Um, oh man. <laughs> You chose it. You chose it. You weren't strong of mind enough, strong of spirit. You see what I mean? Like these two things, like a fitness function and then also a reach towards um, a reach towards a self-transcendence. And it's like, we need both. Mm -hmm. And it's being in that zone. That's important, right? Because, you know, partly why Ilabaka was so pro prolific, I think is because he was able to tap into a frequency of himself that was authentic and real. Yeah. That just made him certain, you know, like I'm sure I, I felt it in my training where you can, where you can know if you can do something. Oh, and yeah. Of course you're going to fall sometimes when, but you also know when you're playing with fire and when you're a little bit more just like, this is happening next. So, um, yeah. And uh, if you have a really, you know, it's very circumstantial. I think there's a lot that goes into it, mm -hmm. but you know, with, with someone like Ilabaka, I think I just see somebody who tuned into that just reality in a really big way um, until, until he did it, you know, maybe eventually he did get slapped up, you know, and then that's, that's what takes some of us out. That's certainly I've been in, I've, cause I've been in a zone where I've been like, I am fucking right there. You know, I know exactly what I'm capable of, but it's, eventually you reach a little bit past your limit and I got knocked unconscious literally. I mean, like, you know, I, I got, I suffered a concussion because I was just overcommitted basically to, to a movement. Yeah. And in the same way that you can overcommit to a strike in, in fighting and get knocked out. And, yeah. and I had to learn, you know, a lesson in hubris and a lesson in uh, just being more measured and listening. And again, retuning into, to my body. Cause what, what that came down to for me was just not really listening and being more focused on some of these external factors and getting it, getting it completed and being overconfident. But if you are in that zone, then it seems like you can make the choice to 
maybe even if you don't fall, maybe even if you don't complete the challenge, you don't eat shit, you know, or get knocked out. You're still in it. Reality is, is happening in the way that um, you feel in control. Yeah. But all that to say, just, you know, I love, I love that, that parkour. I've always seen it as a martial art as well. And I always think that it is real feedback. Like you said, I love that you said that you can't pretend that. <laughs> yeah. You can't pretend that you can do a jump. It's like you can't jump 30 feet, right? No. <laughs> if you think you can jump 30 feet, you're, you're going to get hurt. Right. Well, I guess, I guess uh, Dom Tommaso now did like a, a 30 foot flip drop. <laughs> uh, well, and, and again, like there's something he knows, you know, there's something that he's knowing um, he's that feedback, right? there's something like, real that is he, yeah, his, because he's pushing it in a way that, you know, a lot of us, we would think that's impossible, mm-hmm. especially just, especially because it hasn't taken him out yet. So he's, he's, he's discovered something, you know, he's discovered Maybe. something real. It might just be that he's discovered that, wow, I have a lot more capacity to take impact than the average human. You know, maybe, you know, maybe it comes back to bite him. Right. We don't, we don't know, but, uh, I I'm having a really interesting experience right now. Like, like on this, like this idea of the spiritual and its intersection with, with the physical practice. I, I've been noticing something recently about that where I'm 38 years old and like I, I trained parkour and reached a pretty high level by the time I was like 30, you know, like I was running in those competitions and I was doing pretty well. Um, I was competitive at least, if not one of the dominant athletes for sure. Uh, but I never really explored movement at heights when I was in the urban slash gym community mm. because I like very early in my, uh, parkour experience, I became a leader of the community and I was always anxious about getting arrested and trespassing and kind of showing up in the news and giving a bad reputation to parkour. So when I started training in nature, it actually opened the door because it was like, I can jump between two tree branches and I don't have to, uh, I don't have to trespass to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've, I've kind of discovered my relationship with heights really late in my training career. And as I was starting to explore it, I always had this idea like, okay, well, eventually there's a point where you need to move past this because you can't, you can't keep expanding this forever. You're going to age out of it. And, mm. and I actually thought that that had happened. Like I was like, okay, you know, I did a bunch of crazy height stuff when I was in Europe uh, two summers ago and I came back and my knees were all baked and, and I just took some time off and it was like uh, a summer went by and I was like, um, okay, I didn't do any height stuff. Probably not going to do height stuff for a while. Yeah. Ever again, really at that level. And then this spring, all of a sudden it's like all these jumps at height are calling to me. They're just, they're just right there for me. <laughs> and I feel really, really dialed in, you know? Um, and like I've been going through, I do this meditation practice where I do focus meditation, right? So I look at a point and I breathe and I try to just keep my mind on that point as much as possible and try no, to let, not to resist other thoughts, but to try to get to this point where the, the other thoughts just simply don't catch in my mind as they come through. And I'm just completely zoned into this, right? And then I'll do a body scan, right? Like how is my body? And then I'll do a loving kindness meditation. And I like, I had this realization, well, one, like the, the stronger your focus is, the less likely you are to get injured. The more that you can pay attention to exactly the thing that needs to be paid attention to, the safer you are. But also like 
I am not convinced that a lot of the people who are chasing heights aren't doing it in a self-destructive way. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that like you stay safe, that when you have that loving kindness meditation, it actually helps you stay safe. Because like you ground yourself in, is this choice that I'm making actually loving towards myself? And like, it, and I love my wife. I love my children. I love my community. Am I behaving in such a way that I'm putting those connections at risk? And it's like, once when I'm in that state where I've like got those things checked off and I look at a jump and I just know that I can do it. It's like, I know that I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, it's, it's, it's not coming from this ego place and that feels really safe. Can we pause? Yeah, go ahead. Pause. Where does it come from? Okay, so uh, I'm gonna. I've I'm, I'm, I'm got this recording, but uh, you, you tell me if we want to share this. Okay. <laughs> so I wrote this up. Um, so this is this is this is a video idea I had. Okay, so what kind of tracer are you? Okay. You're wearing gloves, skinny jeans, and skate shoes. Chances are you spend most of your time jumping off playground equipment and screaming parkour, parkour. Mm-hmm. Your knees will be shot in a year or two, and that's, but that's okay because you'll just be your drunk average kid in four years anyways. <laughs> you're a parkour noob. Okay. Uh, you, are, you have sweatpants on, fayus, long hair. You're a parkour purist. You think God kills a kitten every time someone calls a flip parkour, but you spend hours spinning around on rails. You had an altar to para David Bell in your room until he learned he teamed up with Fig, and now you're going through an existential crisis. <laughs> um, uh, you're wearing Kmart sweatpants uh, and, uh, and a uh, sweatshirt and Kmart shoes. You only speak French. You think a mile of quadrupedal is a nice, gentle warm-up, and you're deeply offended when someone uses English terms for parkour movements. You're an original tracer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you have suspiciously ex- uh, suspiciously expensive sweatpants on, feus, and you have a man bun. You're a <laughs> movement culture expat. You used to run, jump, and climb, but now you think the most important elements of being a mover are standing still on your hands, being able to touch your nose to your toes, and wiggling around on the ground. Um, you're wearing harem pants an over-length t-shirt vans parkour shoes you're a free runner the only difference between you and a shitty tricker is that you can't double cork without a platform and you can probably flip off a building but you can't do a decent climb up to save your life (laughs) and this is the one that kept coming up in our conversation you're wearing merm shorts (laughs) t-shirt wait what was merm shorts and what a, uh, an expensive t-shirt, uh-huh. high pattern socks, and uh, you're carrying around a kendama. <laughs> you're a Colorado tracer. You spend most of your time descending down the outsides of parking garages. And yeah, your precisions are tight and you can jump really far, but you'd really rather be playing kendama if the peer pressure and existential angst didn't force you to risk your life every day. Oh man, that is <laughs> hilarious. That is so funny. I love it. I mean, I think, yeah, I would love to see that fully, fully <laughs> articulated out. That's amazing. Uh, and then, uh, yeah. here we go. Lem shoes, prana, sh- uh, prana pants, yellow shirt, beard. Oh, God, you've fallen for that hippie parkour shit. 
your constant <laughs> fucking twigs out of your hair and all your clothes have dirt and grass stains. And now you don't just suck at parkour, you can suck at martial arts and dancing too. That's <laughs> evolved move play. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's so great. Yeah, man. I love it. We got to be able to make fun of ourselves. I think for a long time, there was like... <laughs> there was just like, we weren't big enough to make fun of us. Like it kind of made sense for us to be like, we all need to be on the same team. So like, like it doesn't, it's not helpful to talk shit right now, but also I don't know, dude. And when it's funny, it's funny, man. If it's funny, it's cause it's kind of true. And if it bothers you, it's because it's something you probably need to look at. So I'm always about like, you know, I think comedy in is one of the, what, one of the swords towards truth Absolutely. that I, respect the most as much as i respect movement practice yeah. somebody who has wit and somebody who can take it to that take a take a take two points of view and take it to a tertiary or meta level and make you laugh so you you kind of see what's happening you know i think laughter is always a indication of getting towards something good yeah i think uh well you know uh jordan peterson says the the trickster archetype is next to is next to the savior it's like mm. It's the predecessor of the savior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so often it's the, it's because uh, very often the, the comedian is the only person who can speak certain truths when they're difficult to speak. 100%. So the reason I specifically brought that up is because we've been talking about this idea that of parkour is a spiritual path and also the idea that there's a dark side to it. And, you know, I've, you know, Colorado really has led the way in skill in parkour, in, in, in especially pure parkour, right? Like, you know, if you want to get, if you want to have the, the best experience of flippers, like the best flippers in the world are, let's say in LA, right? At least in the, in, in the U S but if you want to see the biggest jumps, the biggest precisions, the craziest descents, right? The most complex skill work and speed work, um, like Colorado parkour has pretty much been where it's at for a long time. Mm -hmm. But I've also noticed that like a lot of people in the par uh, Colorado parkour scene have reported serious mental health problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a huge concentration of people who are struggling with in intense depression, anxiety, existential angst. Yeah. And I wonder to what degree they're related. Right? I, I, I think about it often. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. And, and what is the, If parkour has a transformative power or movement practice is a transformative power, maybe it's, and I think all of these things, they're double-edged swords mm. and we don't know, right? Like, you know, maybe like, maybe this, this guy we watch on YouTube who's doing this incredible movement is like, he, he flips 30 feet, right? You know, does a 30 foot drop front flip and walks out and he like enters Nirvana and he goes home and like he, he, you know, he gives all of his change to a kid on the street and, you know, treats his, his wife perfectly and his kids and everybody he touches in his life becomes a better person, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe that person who we're all admiring on that is like, you know, is cutting themselves and doing heroin in the background and, you know, and, you know, blowing up their relationships with everybody in their life because, you know, you don't understand me. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, it's so hard to know. Right. And it's, you can, you can, I mean, I, I don't really, 
I don't know what the chemistry is behind it, but there is, there is something to, you know, even just, you know, I didn't, I never thought I was like an adrenaline junkie or anything like that. Right. But I know now that I have taken some hits, you know, of adrenaline, you know, I wouldn't say like, I'm, you know, I'm say I would say I'm like more sober from it now for almost than I would say that I'd never, yeah, I'm never adrenaline junkie. It's like, no, I used to, I used to fuck with adrenaline. You know, I used to fuck. It's like, I used to binge drink in college. I have a healthy relationship with it now, alcohol. And I have a healthy relationship with height training and parkour generally, but especially like that stuff that will make you feel that hit of, of dopamine or whatever. I don't, I'm actually not sure which chemical it is that you get when, when you complete something that's scary or when you get um, recognition for that potentially, but that is, that is the, the, the dark side of training in some ways. And, and I think it's also important to wield it. I think one of the things that we get, why we get involved in that is because, you know, part of facing that chaos and facing that fear is also facing your own dark side, I'd say, you know, and that's another whole, you know, podcast just on like, yeah. you know, Carl Jung and, and, you know, shadow and, and developing your, your shadow side. But, but I don't know that, uh, yeah, it's easy to come out of if that's what, if like, it's just like when you specialize in it and you become super efficient, you know, there's incentive. It's like the same way that we're incentivizing those companies you spoke of, um, with government subsidy. It's like, it's too big to fail. Well, Instagram, Instagram double taps can be that incentive for some people. And like, you know, and just constant encouragement to, to go further and deeper and higher with, with, uh, certain jumps and why do it is so critical, right? Like I had a, one of my students um, recently posted a video of her and she'd lost like 20 or 30 pounds, right? So she's mm-hmm. a weight leaner and she looks really fit and she's moving better. And, and I like, I, I noticed it and commented on it. And then like, I was going to like, first I was just like confirming that I, that I had seen this, this was really true. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I lost the weight. And, and then I had this weird moment where I was like, I don't know if I should congratulate her. I don't know if I should encourage her because I don't know if mm. what she did was actually coming from the right place or if like she's doing something that's deeply self, self abusive and the output is like, it's, you can't tell from the outside whether it comes from the right place. Mm. It's like the same thing with these movement, right? Like with, with those of us who are achieving movement things, it's like, you may be achieving something extraordinary um, from a place that's actually deeply destructive of you. Mm. And yet the, the rest of us may be rewarding you for that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what's so fascinating to me is and in my experience, you can use that as feedback too. That's part of the feedback you'll get. And that's part of the pain that you should pay attention to. Um, and for me, again, just my own experience, if, if, anyway, if it helps anyone, it's like I was able to sort of shift my fuel sources from less sustainable fuel sources to more sustainable ones and see an increase in like just joy experienced while training. Um, and, you know, I, I think I got, I definitely got better at the things I wanted to get better at too. Um, and what I came up against with my training was that it wasn't like, 
it was that I was self-destructive. It wasn't that I um, wasn't, didn't have enough work ethic or didn't have enough, um, you know, what a lot of people might think, you know, you would come up against is like, oh, you just need to train harder or condition more. It's like, no, I was overtraining and destroying my body because I was so dedicated, but in a, in a way that was pathological. Yeah. I've come up with this idea that, um, you need a combination of self-love and self-discipline to optimally grow and mm. adapt as a human being. Mm. But um, it's not simply a matter of balancing these two things. It's also that when you don't truly know yourself or truly love yourself, it's easy to mistake self-discipline. It's easy to mistake self-abuse for self-discipline. Mm. And it's easy to mistake self-indulgence for self-care. Oh yeah. Right. So there, there's a, so I think of, of, of discipline as having a shadow side of abuse and, and care as having a shadow side of indulgence. Right. And I think that a lot of the people in these, these movement communities, right? Like we think that people, there's this myth that the, that the way that you are successful is that you just punish yourself harder than the next person. <laughs> right. Like, you know, uh, I don't know that much about David Goggins. Maybe everything about him is brilliant. But my perception of him, for what it's worth, the way that I imagine what he's putting out into the world is this idea that if you just grind through pain and suffering and terror, that that's ultimately going to, to take you where you want to go. And my experience as an athlete is that I have overtrained myself repeatedly and every time that i have tried to just force myself to become the next thing it's resulted in injury nervous breakdown prolonged periods of depression massive weight gain like um hard work is valuable right <laughs> but it has to be it has to be work that's actually taking you in the direction it's not just work to to fulfill the idea of yourself as hardworking or work to, to punish yourself for your indulgences. Mm. And, uh, you know, in that, in that diagram that I've written out, the key to that is that you can't actually, you can't discipline yourself effectively and you can't care for yourself effectively if you don't deeply know yourself and love yourself. Right. So like at the highest principles of our idea with an evolved move play of the heroic archetype, you, that archetype has to serve logos, right? Truth and agape, like the love that brings good into being. And if you're not trying to proactively cultivate those things in yourself, it doesn't, it doesn't, in, in my opinion, it doesn't matter how hard you work or how good you take care of yourself because you don't even know who you are, right? And you may be taking care of the worst part of you, or you may be pushing yourself to achieve something that's, that, uh, you know, that's ultimately destructive of you. Powerful stuff. Um, I, I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I know you're a busy, man. You got kids yeah. killing the game with all the podcasts, but I do want to ask because that's so poignant. I think that's so cool to talk about right now to wrap up is just, what are, what can people do? Like, what do you have people do in your, in your weekend trainings and or week trainings um, to help people discover 
who they are and and is there any advice that you have on on that yeah That's something um, that is completely individual you can't take advice on yeah it's an interesting question i mean i think all of what we do in some sense does that and we're trying to find these balances there uh but one of the reasons that it's called evolve and move play is this idea that play reveals what is deeply meaningful to you individually mm. when you play seriously right and and you're different you know what you love and what i love they're not exactly the same and in going out and and and, and, and pursuing that passion you find kind of your own little thing so i think maybe for the more experienced parkour athletes in this area, one thing that would be a really great place to start to pursue truth is go train by yourself, right? Mm. Go turn everything off, turn your music off, do everything. And just, just say like, like forget your goals. Like it doesn't matter who has the biggest Kong. It doesn't matter who can do the most flips. It doesn't matter how you've progressed through the skill tree. What movements do you freaking love? Right? start to build a map of who you are journaling is great meditation's great conversations with friends one thing that we found really powerful in our workshops is um dialoguing so like okay like you could do this with your friends right like you can make parkour into a better wisdom practice by doing something like this okay go do your challenge right now like you're doing a challenge for say 20 minutes, you're, you're working through whatever it is that you're working on. Now like turn to your training partner, take a second, close your eyes, take a deep breath, look at them and say, you get one minute to say, what is the insight that you got from the practice? Right? What is that insight that you got from what you were just training? What did you learn? And if you practice that, um, you're, going to, uh, you're going to gain more insight from your practice, right? You can do it with a journal, or you can do it just talking to someone, whatever works better for you. You can do, you can, like I, I insight farm by talking to my phone, right? I, I just record videos. Mm -hmm. um, that would be where I would say to look for maybe some of that, uh, to start your, your, uh, your practice of logos through movement. Um, and then the other one, uh, the agape, the, the self-love, I find that the, the meta meditation, the loving con uh, kindness contemplation, mm -hmm. that's been incredibly powerful for me. And I'm not sure I have a better tool to offer people than that. So uh, go look into, into doing a basic loving kindness meditation and see how that shifts the way that you perceive yourself and, and what's happening within your practice. Right on. Badass. Badass. Um... You know, things to say. I love, I love hearing you talk about all this stuff, man. Thank you, Brandon. I really do. It's really cool to see. And I'm glad there's uh, someone out there kind of thinking about some of the same things. That's also. You broke up on me. I'm, I don't have your audio. But I was just saying, yeah, I just love what you're doing, man. And I love, uh, I love everything you bring to, to the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. About parkour and, and blending this stuff together. You know, there's so much, interesting things happening in the world and I, I i'm ultimately concerned with this truth stuff and just seeing like what what resonates and what's going to go forward yeah i appreciate it man um yeah i thought i was going to be interviewing you but it turned into you interviewing me so Aha! 
Gotcha. <laughs> but this will be great. I'm sure your audience will really appreciate it if uh, if you do want to share this because yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll share it and just I'll just preempt it with like. I thought I was interviewing him, but he turned the tables on me because uh, he's working on his podcast too. Well, you're very interesting. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear you talk about all that stuff. And I appreciate you giving me some insights uh, that I haven't thought about before. Yeah. Yeah. If you ever want to talk about this stuff and just talk about it for whatever reason, whatever's going through your head, anything that you're reading on, on these topics and just want to like share, me, uh, share with me what, what, what's going on, I'd love to, love to keep the conversation going. 100%. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. Cool. All right. I'll let you get back to. I'm going to go take a nap for my next interview. I've got another interview at four. Oh, baby. <laughs> this guy, see? Punishing himself. No, he's just doing it out of self-love. Yeah. Doing it out of self-love. Um, all right. Much love, Ray. Enjoy yeah. your nap. Take Have care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.